Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. This, God willing, will be the last week that I am recording these Proverbs teachings, these midweek messages from my house. And we will be returning to public Wednesday night services starting next week. At least that's our plan. If God says the same, then next week I'll be standing at the pulpit at GCA and teaching this lesson to a collection of people, even though we are trying to abide by the standards, regulations, rules that the governor has requested of groups meeting. We're going to try to keep it small, keep it safe, keep it healthy, but we're also going to be opening our doors again for our midweek service. So that is something we're looking forward to. Today we are in Proverbs chapter 28. Now, a couple of characteristics of this chapter. These last couple of chapters represent Proverbs from Solomon that have been gathered by the men, the scribes of Hezekiah. And they have apparently grouped these Proverbs under similar topics. The overarching topic of chapter 28 is not just a contrast between the wise and the foolish, but more specifically, between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor, between the oppressed and their oppressors. Solomon recognized how incredibly unfair that was. And so, in chapter 28 of Proverbs, not only is he contrasting the wicked and the righteous, but then he is equally contrasting the rich and powerful and the poor who have no ability to do anything about their state or their oppression, and Solomon advances their cause. In a godly society, in a society that is ruled by God himself, God's rules, God's law, God's standards, in that sort of a society... Solomon says that kind of oppression of the poor is an act of rebellion against God. It is sin. Now, the other obvious thing that we're going to see as we get into chapter 28 is that these particular Proverbs go back to the contrasting couplets form that we saw earlier in this book. So each proverb is going to say, something and then use a conjunction, usually the word but, in order to create the contrast between what is correct and what is incorrect. So, with all that introduction out of the way, let's take a look at Proverbs 28, verse 1, which is indeed a contrast between the wicked and the righteous, and it says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. But the righteous are bold as a lion. 
Solomon's apparent meaning is the wicked who constantly have some internal sense of their own wickedness, the way that they are treating other people, they have ample evidence given their actions that they are indeed wicked, that they are indeed hated, that they do deserve some sort of justice. Therefore, they always feel pursued. They never feel at rest. They never feel comfortable in their own skin. And so the wicked tend to flee even when there's no one chasing them because they always have that sense of their own guilt and that eventually justice is going to catch up with them. Whereas the righteous, the people who follow after the word of God, the standards of God, they are not only comfortable in their own skin, but they have a boldness, a confidence about them that is obviously lacking in the wicked. The wicked are constantly afraid, whereas the righteous never need to be afraid because the way they are conducting themselves, whether before God or within the society, is an acceptable way to behave. They're not going to be accruing enemies to themselves. So they can walk through their life not being afraid that someone is pursuing them in order to mete out an appropriate justice. So in short, it's just better to do things God's way because not only do you end up with a more restful, confident conscience about you, but you also don't have to walk through your life in fear that someone is out to get you. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Verse 2, then, turns our attention to what it is to have rulers or princes, people in authority in a land. Solomon is going to argue that having a ruler who understands the things of God will help to establish that ruler long term. But by the transgression of a land, many are its princes. In other words, if the people of any given land and society are rebellious, if they're constantly rioting, if they're always at sin, if they're evil, if they are wicked at their base, then the result is going to be a constant turnover among their leadership. Because naturally, people who are wicked at their core, if they don't like any particular leader, they're going to replace him either by killing him and putting someone else in his seat or by rejecting him and driving him out of the land. In any case, a land that is full of transgression is going to result in a constant turnover within the leadership. But, says Solomon, by a man of understanding and knowledge, so it endures. So the contrast is between the constant overturning of leaders, princes, kings, versus the enduring kingship, the enduring throne of a righteous man. So Solomon, again, from his position as king of Israel, recognizes that his father before him and he himself were placed on the throne by God, and therefore they are ruling according to the law, according to the precepts of God. And that is what Solomon 
credits for his long time on the throne, for the enduring nature of his throne. By the transgression of a land, many are his princes. But by a man of understanding and knowledge, recognizing again that Solomon says that that kind of understanding, that kind of wisdom, that kind of knowledge can only come from God, by the word of God. So a man who has understanding and knowledge, who is also sitting on a throne, that throne, that kingship, is going to endure. And then verse 3. Now, verse 3, if you happen to examine it in several different translations, you'll see that there is no unanimity. The NASB says, a poor man who oppresses the lowly, but other translations like the New International Version says, a ruler who oppresses the poor. The English Standard Version says, a poor man who oppresses the poor. The Berean Study Bible says, a destitute leader who oppresses the poor. The King James parallels the New American Standard and says, a poor man who oppresses the poor. The Holman Christian Standard Bible goes with a destitute leader. The American Standard Version goes with a needy man. And Young's literal translation says, a man poor and oppressing the weak. So what's going on here? Well, the actual Hebrew word that all of these various translations are wrestling with is three letters that we would equate with our letters G and B and R. And then depending on the vowel sounds that you used, you would come away with gabur or gabar or gabor. And that matters because depending on the vowel sounds, you're coming up with a man of war, a valiant man, but it can also mean just a male person. It can be a boy, a husband, or anybody of the male gender. It is also, by the way, in 1 Kings 4.19, used as a proper name. But importantly, this Gabur version of the word has the implication of someone who is prevailing, but they're doing it in a vile manner, and they're being arrogant about it. This is somebody who has done great feats, great exploits, and yet, as a result, it makes them lifted up in pride. And so, a Gabur was a male who is really at the zenith, at the peak of his natural strength. And so that word also became a technical term for a leader of men. But what it does not imply is that he is wealthy. He may be, in fact, a soldier who is under conscription. So when we put all that together, you begin to see why there is some controversy about what is the correct translation. Because we are talking about someone who is powerful, humanly speaking, somebody who's at the peak of their masculine virility, someone who could potentially be a leader of men, 
but the implication continues that it is also a poor man. And it's necessary to understand that impoverished aspect of the word in order to make any sense out of this proverb. Because the second half of verse 3 says that that type of man is like a driving rain which leaves no food. Okay, now let's think about that. Rain is good. In order to have food, especially in the Middle East agrarian culture, it is necessary to have regular rain in order to grow adequate food. But if you have a torrential rain, a long-term driving rain, that can destroy crops. So the very thing that is essential to growing food can also wipe out your food supply. So it's taking something that is good, that is naturally good and necessary, but then taking it to such an extreme that it's no longer valuable. It's in fact destructive. And that's why a ruler, a leader, but a destitute leader, a poor leader, who then oppresses the lowly people, the poor people, the people who don't have any power to help themselves, that is something that makes no sense. Because if the Gaber is also a poor person, then he ought to relate to the poor of the society. And because he has strength, he ought to help them up. He ought to help provide for them. But because that word, the gabur, also means somebody who becomes arrogant because of their strength and their exploits, what you end up with is a poor person who ought to relate to the other poor people, but because of his physical abilities, he oppresses them instead. He creates a separation between himself and the other poor people by virtue of the fact that he has physical strength that they don't have. So while his physical strength and leadership ability should be a benefit to the poor, the same way that rain ought to be a benefit in growing food, too much rain destroys the food the same way that an arrogant leader, even if he's poor, is not a benefit to the lowly. Instead, he ends up oppressing the lowly. So something that ought to be good and beneficial becomes destructive. And I think that's the best understanding of that particular proverb. Now, a moment ago, Solomon told us that in order to be king, in order to be a good king, to be a wise king, it was necessary to follow after the rules, the ordinances of God himself, to be a man of understanding and knowledge. And so, verse 4 is a contrast between those who keep the law and those who forsake the law. It says, those who forsake the law, which means to go away from it, to ignore it. That kind of person praises the wicked. This is a concept that we see frequently in the Bible. 
evil people gravitate toward other evil people because it makes them feel better about their own evil. Remember, we're talking about people who flee when nobody's pursuing them. They have a guilty conscience. They have that sense that eventually justice is going to catch up with them. But if they can find birds of a feather so they can flock together, if they find other people that they can hang out with that are equally wicked as they are, then they can justify themselves, they can appease themselves, because there's power in numbers. They think that as a group, it's going to be impossible to bring them all to justice. So those who forsake the law do praise the wicked. But those who keep the law strive with them. In other words, those who care about the law, whether that's the king's law, the societal laws, but more important, God's own law, somebody who abides in those laws is going to strive with, argue with, contend against the wicked. So the contrast of this proverb is between the reactions of the wicked and the righteous. The wicked are going to praise and lift up and encourage other wicked people, whereas righteous people, people who are following after the law, they are going to contend with, they are going to strive against the wicked. So I suppose that that's one way that you can determine a person's condition. Are they wicked or are they righteous? The answer is, well, who do they hang out with? And when they come across wicked people, do they encourage them? Do they pat them on the back? Do they praise them? Or do they contend with them? Do they correct them? Do they instruct them in the ways of righteousness? That, according to Solomon, is proof positive of what you're really about. Are you righteous or are you wicked? Evil men, says verse 5, don't understand justice. Well, of course not. They're always going to try to avoid justice, and they don't see the value of it. They don't understand why the society doesn't allow them to just continue in their pernicious ways, to just continue in their wantonness, in their evil. So they don't really comprehend justice, either as a necessary element in a society or even as a concept, the necessity of justice in order to keep a society just and safe. They don't get that. The second half of verse 5 says, But those who seek the Lord understand all things. So once again, Solomon going back to the basic concept, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Those who seek, who reverence, who have a genuine respect for the things of God, those people who seek the Lord, they are going to end up understanding everything because it's going to be revealed to them what the best way is to operate within a society. And so I think this verse also kind of relates to what we've already read in verse 2, that if you have a land that is full of transgressors, the result is going to be a constant overturning of the leaders, of the princes, of the kings, as that corrupt society looks for leaders that will be as corrupt as they are and allow them to continue in their corrupt ways. And that destroys a society. 
In order for a throne to endure, it takes a man on the throne who has understanding and knowledge and fear of God. Those who seek the Lord will understand the necessity of justice. And if we expand that kind of thinking beyond just a society all the way to God and his justice, the evil, the rebellious against God, don't understand the necessity of God's justice. In fact, they find it cruel. It's one of the common reasons that people will say that they don't believe in or don't adhere to the God of the Bible, and they will point to all the ways that God has meted out appropriate justice. And he does that sometimes with plagues. He does that sometimes with armies. He does that sometimes by bringing wild animals or enemies down on the people of Israel. And to a person who doesn't have any wisdom or understanding of the things of God, that can make God seem cruel and capricious. It takes an actual God-given understanding of the righteousness of God, the correctness of his precepts, in order to understand the justice of God. I've heard a great many people through the years who argue against the concept of hell or outer darkness, God's eternal justice. That's why universalism exists, because people have a difficult time with the notion of a God who is comfortable, who is willing to mete out that level of justice. To our human reckoning, that seems extreme. It seems unfair. It seems unloving. And what they don't understand is that actual holiness and righteousness demands justice. And that, not to go too far afield from the book of Proverbs here, but that is why the sacrifice of Christ is so vitally important. That's why it lays at the very core and root of Christianity that God, who is because of his righteousness, he is going to mete out appropriate justice on every single living person, and you're either going to have to pay the price for your rebellion, for your sin, for your rejection of all things godly and righteous, or God allowed that a substitute could pay your sin penalty, that you could be made justified, you could be made righteous through the actions of that substitute. And so God could be just and the justifier of those who come to him through Christ. So all the way back here in Proverbs, Solomon is telling us that evil men aren't going to get that. They're not going to comprehend the necessity of righteous judgment and justice being poured out. But those who have God-given wisdom, those who seek the Lord, well, those people are going to come to understand. They're going to comprehend it. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. Then verse 6 actually acts as a bit of a contrast to verse 3, where verse 3 was talking about a poor, 
strong man, a poor leader who oppresses the lowly. Verse 6 refers again to a poor person, but says, Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. So there are two very obvious contrasts here. One is better, one is worse. There's the poor, and there's the rich, and there's the person who walks in his integrity, in his uprightness, versus somebody who is crooked, who is corrupt in his ways. Because wealth translates into power, into authority, into the ability to rule over lesser people, you know the old joke that the golden rule is whoever has the most gold gets to make the rules. We think that more money, because it gets you more friends and more power, more authority, more influence, we think that more money covers up for our corruptness. And we certainly see that to this very day among our celebrity class. As you're standing in line at the checkout counter at the grocery store, there are all of these publications that have celebrities on the cover. And then they want to tell you some salacious tale about these celebrities. Or how many sports stars or rock stars are we aware of whose lives and behavior can only be described as antisocial or corrupt so the behavior of the rich and famous is not the same as the behavior of the less fortunate in our society. In fact, we could probably all recount episodes where people who didn't have any money, power, authority, were treated differently by our justice system than a celebrity who doesn't spend any time in jail or who gets off scot-free for some infraction of the law simply by virtue of the fact that they are rich and famous. Well, that's what Solomon is getting at. It is actually better long-term. It is better for your conscience. You're going to rest well, and you're going to end up standing before God with hope expecting grace and kindness from God, definitely it is better if you're a poor person to walk uprightly, to walk in your integrity. That is better for you societally. That is better for you eternally. And that makes you far better off than the rich and famous who are crooked. If justice does not catch up with them in this lifetime, there is still a day of reckoning coming. They still have to stand before an absolutely righteous and holy God who is going to judge them according to their behavior. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. And then verse 7 returns again to keeping the law versus someone who is evil and corrupt and then chooses companions who are the same way. He who keeps the law is a discerning son. And we've read several times from Solomon what joy a wise son brings to his father. But 
He who is a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. Gluttony, to be clear, is a form of greed. If you're overeating, satiating your flesh at every turn, then that is a form of pride. It is a form of greed. And that kind of behavior is contrary to the law of God. He who keeps that law is somebody who has discernment, somebody who has wisdom. And obviously, he's going to make his father proud. But if that son is somebody who has the attributes of evil and corruption, then it's going to be demonstrated by the people he hangs out with. He keeps company with. He is a companion of people who satiate their own flesh, gluttons. And as a consequence, he humiliates his father. His father is ashamed of him. His father is not proud of him. And verse 8 says, He who increases his wealth by interest and usury. And I think contextually, Solomon is talking about someone who is taking advantage of the poor. Certainly that's the way that these terms, usury, have been used earlier in the book of Proverbs. A rich man who has food, who has money, who has the ability to help, who is only willing to help if the poor person promises to pay it back with interest, well, that rich man is taking advantage of other people's poverty. And then he ends up increasing his own wealth by the interest and the usury on the debt that other people owe him. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. So the contrast is obvious. There is the person who, through interest and usury, is oppressing the poor versus those who are gracious to the poor. And what Solomon seems to be getting at here is that those wicked people are only increasing their wealth for that wealth to be moved to someone else. That's the kind of wealth that is practically impossible to retain. And by contrast, someone who is gracious to the poor, who gives to the poor, God is going to provide for that person. So there's a great benefit to generosity. There's a great benefit to being kind and helpful to people who are in desperate estates. Not only does that benefit the person, but God who sees, God who reads the heart, recognizes that generosity and will continue to provide for you so that you can continue in those generous ways. He who increases his wealth by interest in usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. Okay, now, before we look at verse 9, this past Sunday, I quoted a line that I first heard from a preacher probably 30 years ago, and I was struck by it when I heard it because I was taken by how true it is. And so, to this very day, I continue to quote it. The line is, 
the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to put me in hell forever. And the point that was being made is, we as sinful people never reach the point of such righteousness, even when we are praying in our most earnestness. We are still sinners, and so we should never vaunt ourselves, we should never lift ourselves up and start thinking that we have ever reached a point of true holiness and righteousness in this lifetime. As long as we're living in this flesh, we will always be battling with our sin nature. But anyway, in verse 9, Solomon gives credibility to that idea. And notice how similar this proverb is to the quotation from the preacher. Verse 9 says, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law. So we're talking about an unrighteous person. We're talking about a sinner. We're talking about someone who does not care about the things of God and who turns his ear away from listening to the things of God. He doesn't care about the law, the precepts, the standards of God, nor, in fact, does he care about the law of a society, especially a society like Solomon's, where the civil laws were all based on and dictated by God himself in his law. If someone was to turn away from that, then they're rebellious against God. And the second half of that verse says, even his prayer, even that moment when he might call out to God, and so that would be sort of the pinnacle of his personal righteousness, even his prayer is an abomination. It is something that God reckons as completely unclean and a violation of everything that is godly. And that's the man's prayer. So a man who is inherently evil, rebellious, who constantly turns away from the instruction of God, who looks away from the law of God, well then, that man, when he's in trouble, when he's in a desperate estate, when things go wrong for him, when justice actually does catch up with him, if he cries out to God at that point, then that is still an abomination before God. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. Now, as we said earlier, evil people flock to other evil people. Whether it's being a companion to gluttons, or evil men who collectively don't understand justice, Evil men, in order to justify themselves, to make themselves feel better about themselves, will always stand in opposition to the righteous. Upright people, righteous people within a society, are like a big red flashing neon sign that points out the iniquity of the evil people. And that just emphasizes to them the unease and the willingness to flee when no one is pursuing them. And so the solution, in their mind, is to corrupt the righteous people. Because they think if they can corrupt the righteous, 
then obviously righteousness does not exist. And after all, if I can make even you God-fearing people behave more like me, then I don't have to worry so much about my behavior. So verse 10 says, He who leads the upright astray in an evil way will himself fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. Evil men always make evil plots. They always have evil intentions. And they will always attempt to get as many people as possible to join them in their debauchery, in their evil. And part of that evil is that they don't understand justice. They especially don't understand the necessity of God's justice. But verse 10 tells us a little bit about what God's justice looks like. God knows those that are his, and he knows those that are his enemies. Ultimately, even as the evil design their evil and dig a pit for other people to fall into, they're going to fall into their own pit. Their own wickedness, their own unrighteousness is going to come back on their own heads. But the person who walks uprightly, the blameless, is going to inherit good things. That is the very justice of God being meted out. Those who follow after God and his way will receive the reward. And of course, as we read through the whole rest of the Bible, we get some glimpse of what that reward looks like, that we will be joint heirs with Christ that we will walk the streets of the new Jerusalem, that when we depart this body, we will be with the Lord. Those are all great good things that we are promised in the Bible. And so that becomes our motivation, our inspiration to walk uprightly. As you walk in this present evil age, there are going to be plenty of evil people and evil opportunities, and wicked people will always attempt to lead you astray. It's everywhere in our society. Temptation abounds. But God knows, and God is going to make sure that justice is appropriately distributed. He who leads the upright astray in an evil way will himself fall into his own pit. But the blameless will inherit good. All right, now earlier I said to you that according to man's reckoning, money seems to justify everything, and no matter how wicked a rich person is, he thinks that his wealth is enough to make it all okay, regardless of how he lives his life, the very fact that he has money is the guarantee that he'll never be held accountable for his behavior. At least that's what he thinks. Verse 11 says, A rich man is wise in his own eyes. He thinks he's fine. I mean, that whole godly wisdom thing? Who needs that? That's not necessary. I'm completely self-sufficient. I've got enough money. Let me tell you a quick story. 
I won't name names, but I'm going to tell you an absolutely true story. I had two friends. They were both musicians. One was a very, very famous, really well-known musician. If I said his name, you would know him immediately. The other was a very talented, but completely unknown and impoverished musician. And because they admired each other's talent, they used to hang out a lot together. Both of them had drink and drug problems. So one night they were both sitting at a bar, both well beyond inebriated and keeping themselves going with chemical compounds that they were ingesting nasally. When the more impoverished of the two looked at his companion and said, Do you think we have a problem? To which the very famous and wealthy musician replied, No, you have a problem. I can afford to clean up my messes. In other words, a rich man is wise in his own eyes. He thinks his money justifies whatever it is he does. Now, as long as I just revealed that story to you, most of us in this lifetime, by comparison, are never going to reach the heights of fame and wealth that that particular guy reached. And yet, if you were to meet him, as I've done numerous times, it wouldn't take you long to figure him out. And in fact, despite his wealth and fame, I found myself considering him a rather wretched creature as he was going through his own self-destruction. The second half of verse 11 says, The poor who has understanding sees through him. So the reason that I put that particular verse in the context of my own life experience is to say that these Proverbs are not just true in history. They weren't just valid in Solomon's estimation. These are still truisms. These are still things that can teach and instruct us as we walk through the modern society. A rich man is still wise in his own estimation. He's still clever in his own eyes. But the poor, who has comprehension, who has understanding, sees right through him. It's one of the reasons that Solomon said, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than the crooked, though he be rich. Even though wealth in this world might be able to buy you a great many things, objects, the one thing that wealth cannot buy you is genuine godly wisdom. And because of that, even if you die with all the world's wealth, but you're an enemy of God, you end up very, very poor indeed. Now, in a properly balanced society, they're going to recognize the value of having righteous people among them. Verse 12 says, When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. What Solomon is describing is a righteous leader, a righteous general who may have just 
won a war or a battle and then protected the whole city, and then they're going to throw him a parade. They're going to give him great honor. He's going to be recognized by the king. When the righteous in a society triumph, it is to the glory of the whole city, of the whole society, because it benefits the whole group, the whole society benefits as the righteous continue to triumph. But when the wicked rise, when wicked people are lifted up, men hide themselves. In contrast to going out into the streets to laud and praise a righteous person in their triumph, when evil people are lifted up, that causes fear, that causes consternation, that causes men to hide themselves from the wicked who have been lifted up. So righteousness is not just good for a human being, it's good for the city, it's good for the society. And so it is correct, it is right for men to celebrate the triumph of righteous people. And it is equally appropriate for them to hide themselves away when wicked men come into power, when wicked men are lifted up. Verse 13 then says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Boy, that is a verse that would be completely at home and comfortable in any book of the New Testament. People attempt to hide, to cover their sins, their transgressions against God. And that behavior began as early as Adam and Eve, when they sewed fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. As part of our attempt to justify ourselves, it's natural that we would try to hide our sins and transgressions or do them in the dark, trying to avoid detection. But people who have God-given wisdom also know that the character of God is graciousness, is kindness, is long-suffering. And therefore, when we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. But notice that Solomon does not stop there. Not only do you confess your sin, but you also forsake them. You turn away from them. The phrase that I have used so many times through the years is, engage the battle. Even Paul talks about the fact that there is a warfare going on between the spirit and the flesh. As Jesus said, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Even though we know that we're never going to attain perfect, holy, righteous perfection in this lifetime, as long as we are living in this sinful flesh, nevertheless, that's not an excuse. The fact that you know that God is kind and gracious is not an encouragement to sin all the more. Paul asks, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? And his answer is, no, absolutely not. Heaven forbid. No, that's not the way it works. So even as we confess our sinfulness to God, 
we also engage the battle in order to forsake those transgressions against God. We don't continue in them, we fight against them. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Verse 14, How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And the contrast is obvious between being blessed and falling into calamity, between the man who reveres God always, all his actions, all his works, whatever his hand finds to do, he does it as unto the Lord. He recognizes God's supremacy and sovereignty in every aspect of his life, and as a consequence, blessings come to that man. Even as small as the blessing of being able to put his head on his pillow, knowing that he is at peace with God. But the person who refuses all of that, who refuses wisdom, who refuses reverential fear, who refuses to worship God, the kind of person who says, I will not have this man to rule over me, that person who hardens his heart is going to come to calamity. He's never going to be at rest. He's going to be fleeing when there's nobody pursuing him. He's going to fall into the pit that he himself dug. He's going to fall under the hand of God's righteous judgment. So how blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The next two verses actually go together. Solomon talking about a wicked ruler and a leader who is a great oppressor. Verse 15 says, Like a roaring lion and a rushing bear. Both of those are really bad. A roaring lion, apparently ready to attack, and a rushing bear, a bear running right straight at you is a wicked ruler over a poor people. In other words, a wicked ruler, a man who is wicked in his heart, who wants to take advantage of other people, will see poor people as an opportunity to enrich himself, which will result in their destruction. It will result, figuratively, in them being torn limb from limb the way a roaring lion or a rushing bear would do. Like a roaring lion or a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. Verse 16, a leader who is a great oppressor lacks understanding. In other words, he is the opposite of a wise, of a righteous ruler. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. So very much like the idea of interest in usury being a way for a person to increase his own wealth and to do it on the back of the poor, Solomon says that a leader who is that kind of oppressor clearly demonstrates that he doesn't understand 
the laws of God, nor does he understand the great value of having righteous people within his society, because he's ruling by oppression, by keeping the poor people down, by destroying them. And as a result, his leadership is not going to last very long, because we've already read in verse 2, by the transgression of a land, many are its leaders, its princes, but a man of understanding and knowledge will cause that throne, that leadership to endure. Same idea here in verse 16. He who hates unjust gain through oppression, through usury, through charging interest on the poor, he who hates that kind of unjust gain will prolong his days. He'll continue in his leadership for a long time because the people of the society are going to recognize him as a righteous judge, as a righteous leader, as a righteous king. And his days are going to be prolonged as a result. A roaring lion, a rushing bear, is a wicked ruler over a poor people, a leader who is a great oppressor lacks understanding, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. Now, in order to understand verse 17, we have to go back to one of the earliest rules that God placed on mankind. All the way back in Genesis 9, starting at verse 6, we read, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood will be shed. For in his own image, God has made mankind. The idea of the guilt associated with shedding innocent blood looms very large in the Bible. And so Solomon says here in verse 17, A man who is laden with the guilt of human blood, will be a fugitive until death. Let no one support him. That word laden means to be weighed down with, to be carrying it on your shoulders. It is a guilt that you can't get out from under. And a man who is under that weight of guilt because he has shed human blood is never going to be a recognized part of a civil society. Therefore, it's necessary, says Solomon, to either bring him to justice or he be a fugitive for the whole rest of his life until appropriate justice can be determined against him. And no one is to help him. No one is to support him. Everybody is to recognize that that sort of person not only is rebellious against God and one of the primary dictates of God's word, thou shall not kill, is even in the top ten. And a man who is walking about with that heavy burden of guilt on himself because he has shed human blood, I mean, that is kind of the epitome of being an evil person. And so he will be an outcast. He will be a fugitive until the day he dies. And the directive is, let nobody support him. And then verse 18 again returns to the contrast between those who walk blamelessly and those who are inherently crooked. 
it says, He who walks blamelessly will be delivered, but he who is crooked will fall all at once. It's a pretty straightforward contrast that all has to do with how do you walk out your life? How do you behave yourself? How do you conduct yourself? Do you walk according to the wisdom that God has given you? And therefore you will be delivered from the trials of this life, the problems of this life. You will ultimately be delivered into the glory of God himself. But if you walk through this lifetime in a crooked way, you're going to fall into much more than just the pit that you dug. You're going to fall into the pit of God. And that will be a complete calamity for you. And so you will fall all at once. And now at verse 19, for the first time in this chapter, we are reintroduced to the notion of the person who is willing to do the work versus a lazy man. And it says, he who tills his land, that means who gets out and plows his land, who prepares his land for putting seed in it, he will have plenty of food. The end result of diligent work is getting the reward. But he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. I like the little word play there. You're either going to have plenty of food or you're going to have plenty of poverty. You're going to have a whole lot of nothing. And the deciding factor between the two is, are you willing to get up and do the work necessary to provide the harvest later on? Are you forward-thinking enough to recognize the value of the effort that you put in today? It may not pay dividends today or tomorrow or even next week, but in the day of harvest, you're going to end up with plenty of food because you diligently did the work. But on the other hand, if your days are filled with frivolous things, if you're just wasting time, if you're just doing those things that are fun and pleasurable to you, rather than doing the necessary work, in the end, the only harvest that you are going to reap is a whole lot of poverty. And once again, at verse 20, we return to the primary theme of this whole chapter, which is the contrast between a person who is faithful, though poor, and somebody who is rich and evil. Verse 20 says, A faithful man will abound with blessings. Just like verse 14 said, How blessed is the man who fears always. A faithful man will abound with blessings. But he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. The contrast seems to be the positive benefits that come on a person who is faithful versus the person who is willing to use interest or usury in order to oppress the poor for his own benefit, for his own advancement. A person who doesn't have much of this world's riches, but he remains faithful. He remains constant to the things that he has learned, 
to the wisdom that has been afforded him in this lifetime. And as a result, he's going to get through. He's going to be protected. He's going to be cared for, even if he never gains the riches of this world. Nevertheless, he will abound in blessings. And by contrast, the man that is only in a hurry to get rich will not be blessed, but will indeed be punished for the uncharitable way in which he took advantage of other people because of his hurry to get rich. And that phrase, that he makes haste to be rich, is in contrast with Solomon's earlier instruction to do the work and then lay some aside and build wealth over the course of time. People who are into the get-rich-quick schemes don't care who they have to take advantage of, They just simply want to get rich themselves, and they're willing to do anything or hurt anyone as long as it advances their own personal cause. As a result, says Solomon, they're going to suffer. They're going to be punished for that. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. In verse 21, then, Solomon returns to that idea of judge, remembering again that to be a king was to be a judge. And he has said repeatedly that it is necessary that a judge be impartial and not take a bribe. Don't mete out judgment according to how it might benefit you. So verse 21 says, To show partiality is not good. It's not proper. It's not upright. To show partiality is not good because for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. A bribe, any bribe, not even a big bribe. It can be just a piece of bread. Anything that benefits a judge can be used in order to corrupt proper justice. So a judge ought to avoid all such bribery, because even for a piece of bread, a man is willing to transgress. And that's what it is to show partiality. If you favor a rich person over a poor person, simply because the rich person can benefit you and can give you something... Well, that is a form of injustice toward the poor person. So, in order to remain an upright and appropriate judge, to show partiality is not good, not appropriate, because for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. So, notice finally that showing partiality is not only not good, and the opposite of not good is obviously evil, But Solomon says that demonstrating that kind of partiality for a bribe is actually sin. It is actually a transgression. It's a transgression against the law of the land. Ultimately, it is a transgression against the law of God, who in his righteousness demands that the judges of Israel also demonstrate appropriate righteousness. Remember what we just read, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but if you make haste to be rich, 
you're not going to go unpunished. That applies to judges as well. Now, a moment ago in verse 20, we read about a man who makes haste to be rich. Verse 22 returns to that theme. A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want, that need, that necessity will come upon him. A man who is only chasing the wealth of this world isn't giving any consideration to the consequences of his wanton desire for money. Because wealth and power and money is the only thing that fills his eyes, Solomon says that it is an evil eye, a man with an evil eye, looking at, lusting over evil things, will chase after wealth. But even as he's doing it, he doesn't understand the want, the need, that is ultimately going to come upon him. Whether that is because he is someday overturned, or whether it is because God himself brings about eternal justice. Nevertheless, the man has become blind to the needs of his neighbors and has taken advantage of the poor in order to enrich himself and is so consumed with that that he doesn't understand the justice of God that is ultimately going to pay back everybody according to their just deserts. A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth, and does not know that want will come upon him. Verse 23 then contrasts two ways of speaking to people. There are two ways to approach people, and one of them is by flattery. Somebody who wants to be liked by everybody else will use ingratiating words in order to make sure that that person likes them. And so they will flatter. And they'll tell you, you're good, you're fine, you're great. God thinks you're a handful of aces. Everything about you is wonderful. By contrast, verse 23 says, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. So actually, you're doing a person more benefit by correcting them, by calling them out for their ill behavior. You're doing them a greater favor than by just flattering them. If you're only telling them the things that they want to hear, then they're never going to understand anything. They're never going to be corrected. Their behavior is never going to be properly adjusted. And so Solomon says there is actually greater value to rebuking, to correcting somebody than simply constantly flattering them. They need that instruction. They need that correction. And the truth is, the person who is being corrected, if he's being corrected in a proper and loving and instructive way, is going to benefit from that. And he's going to recognize the value of that correction. And that is why, I think, Solomon says that he who rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than a man who simply flatters. Someone who's constantly telling you how great you're doing, 
isn't any benefit to you, and eventually they'll wear out their welcome. But a real friend, a true confidant, will also tell you when you need to be corrected. And you will look on that person favorably because of their kindness to you in rebuking you. He who rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Now, as we've been going through this chapter, I have said several times that wicked men, sinful men, oh, let's be honest, all human beings have a remarkable ability to justify themselves. We all think that our particular transgression, our particular sin, isn't really that bad, or that it isn't really a sin at all. And that's what verse 24 gets into. We are told in the Ten Commandments to honor our father and mother. The proverb in verse 24 is just the opposite of that. He who robs his father or his mother and says it is not a transgression is the companion of a man who destroys. So the crime that's being described is twofold. Number one, he robs his father and mother. And we're not told what that robbery looks like. Solomon may be referring to somebody who simply will not work and just lives off his father and mother, takes their stuff, takes their food, but won't go out and be independent. Or he may be talking about somebody who's spending through his inheritance while his mom and dad are still alive and ends up leaving his parents impoverished as a result. In any case, whatever the scenario, he who robs his father and mother and then says that it's not a transgression, the person who leaves his father and mother impoverished and then says it's not that bad, it's not like it's a transgression. It's not like it's a sin. Hey, those are my parents. Whatever they've got is going to be mine anyway. That man, Solomon says, is a destroyer. Whether he has destroyed his family, whether he has destroyed his parents' peace of mind, whether he has destroyed their financial security, whether he has destroyed his relationship with his parents, somebody who robs his father and his mother in order to enrich himself. Again, this is somebody who is just rushing toward wealth, hastening to make himself wealthy. Well, that person is the companion of a man who destroys. And that takes us to verse 25. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. The important contrast in that verse is between an arrogant man who is completely self-sufficient and the person who recognizes his own dependence on God. That self-sufficient person, that arrogant man, is going to stir up all kinds of contention, all kinds of arguments, and he's going to have all kinds of difficulties in this life. But the person who actually trusts in the Lord, who fears God first and foremost, that person is going to prosper. 
whether that is material prosperity or not, being able to partake of the blessings of the Lord, the comfort of the Lord, the peace of mind that comes with the Lord, and ultimately the heavenly glorification that comes from the Lord, that is a tremendous amount of prospering, and it is just the opposite of stirring up all kinds of contention and strife and difficulty in this life. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. And speaking of arrogant, self-sufficient people, verse 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Trusting your own heart means walking according to your own conscience. You're not paying attention to the rules of God, the standards, the expectations of God. Rather, you're trusting your own inherent sense of what is right and wrong. Now, of course, Jeremiah tells us that a man's heart is desperately wicked. And so if you are following after your own desperately wicked heart, and you're trusting whatever it thinks is right and wrong, well, then you are, in fact, a fool, because you are foolishly following the folly of your own foolish, dark, sinful, depraved, desperately wicked heart. And everything about that just seems very foolish. But the person who walks wisely, remembering again that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's the premise that Solomon laid down right at the very beginning. The person who walks wisely is the person who walks after the counsel, the dictates, the law, the expectations of God. And as a consequence, he's not going to be overcome by his desperately wicked heart and his desperately sinful desires. Instead, he's going to be delivered. It is remarkable throughout this chapter how many benefits a person derives from walking after God's counsel, the way that God describes a righteous, upright life. There are tremendous benefits attached to that kind of living. You'll notice that Solomon did not say, he who thinks wisely is going to be delivered. It's not enough to just think things, to just know things, but those things, those godly things, have to affect the way that you walk out your life. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Verse 27 which almost seems like a good summary of everything we've read in this entire chapter. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. There is a basic biblical principle, which is that generous people who look after other people who give to the poor, who clothe and feed the poor, 
who take advantage of every opportunity before them to do the right thing, the godly thing, the appropriate, upright thing. Those people will receive blessings from God. God will take care of those people. And really, if your motivation when helping the poor is the recognition that they too are made in the image of God, and so you are generous for God's sake, the result of that is that you are showing appropriate reverence and worship for God in the way that you are walking out your life, in the way that you are being generous with the things that God has provided for you, in the way that you recognize that you are not better than somebody else, you are not higher or more important than anybody else, and in the way that you recognize that it is God who is your supply every single day. And if he gave you what you need today, he can also give you what you need tomorrow. He is faithful. He is unwavering. He is unchanging. And as that becomes your motivation for helping other people, you are actually demonstrating the value of God in your life through that generosity. On the other hand, if you ignore the problem, if you shut your eyes so that you don't see those opportunities in front of you, if you purposefully look away so that you don't have to help anybody, well, then Solomon says that rather than receiving the blessings from God, rather than being in a state where you will never be wanting yourself, instead you are going to fall under many curses. Life is going to go more difficult for you because you have shut your eyes to the opportunities to help that were right there in front of you. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. And finally, verse 28, when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. If that sounds familiar, it's what we already read back in verse 12. When the righteous triumph, there will be great glory, but when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. When men destitute of the truth rise up in power, rise up in authority, then people who have any amount of righteous wisdom within themselves are going to hide themselves, are going to flee from that. They are not going to participate in the evil that those evil leaders are trying to encourage them to participate in. When the wicked rise, men hide themselves. But when they die, when they perish, when they cease to be in leadership, then the righteous will increase. Wicked leaders result in a wicked society. Wicked leaders result in wicked decisions being made. Wicked leaders do not engender loyalty. Men do not line up behind them. Rather, men hide themselves from them. But when they're gone, when they have perished, when that wicked form of leadership is no longer in power, then the righteous increase. As the suppression of righteousness stops, 
then righteousness increases. And again, that is just simply good for a city, for a society, for a people group. So Solomon, yet again, through this whole chapter, is advocating for appropriate righteousness based on the knowledge of God and the suppression, the avoidance of wickedness in leadership, especially when that wickedness is taking advantage of the disadvantaged of this world. That's chapter 28 of the book of Proverbs. Next week, God willing, we will look at Proverbs chapter 29. And hopefully, we'll be doing that from the pulpit at GCA, where I will once again be rejoining the Wednesday night faithful, the regulars from GCA who join me on Wednesday night as we've been going through these wonderful teaching, these wonderful proverbs, this very current and wonderful instruction from the book of Proverbs. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.